Hello, and welcome back to this special edition of What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping early this week, a little after 10 a.m. Wednesday, September 13th, because I'm going out of town. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So let's get to it. Today we are joined by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Good morning, Julie and other friends. <laughs> Stephanie Armour of The Wall Street Journal. Good morning. And Margot Sanger-Katz of The New York Times. Hey, Julie. So it's only the middle of the week, and we already have tons of health news. We have Republican repeal and replace plans, Democratic single-payer plans, and bipartisan plans. Let's actually start with a real bipartisan agreement on health care. Yes, we have been predicting it for weeks, but last night we got the announcement that Republicans and Democrats on the Senate Finance Committee have agreed to a five-year reauthorization of the children's health insurance program known as CHIP. Joanne, what else do we know about this deal? Um, under the Affordable Care Act, there was a, quote, bump. There was extra funding for CHIP. Um, uh, there, there's a, a formula between state and federal funding. The feds were putting in more. Based on and what, the, the feds already put in more for right. CHIP than the states do. Right. But they were going to put, I think it was an extra 23% if, or I'm within a percentage or two, but I think it was 23. So um, one of the mysteries was, you know, what was going to happen to that bump. Based on the information we got last night, my, one of my reporters got last night, um, the bump phases out. Um, it goes, I believe it's intact for two years and it phases out over three is, I believe, what she told me. Um, and no one really expected that extra funding to last forever. I, chip, no. I mean, the federal government is paying 100 percent of CHIP in some states. No, we all expected a bipartisan deal on CHIP. We did not expect it this quickly because a week ago they looked pretty lost. Um, we did not expect five years. Um, for those of you who have some institutional memory, five years used to be very normal for a funding or reauthorization bill, but nothing is normal anymore. So um, we, you know, we thought two years, possibly four years, but I mean, most people I think expected two. Well, last so, time the Democrats wanted four and the Republicans wanted two, and they ended up with two. Right, and so I had, I think, a lot of people were sort of surprised that it was a, a normal five-year reauthorization. There are a lot of details. We just saw a press release last night, and a few other details emerged, but we don't know the whole thing, and we also do not know what the House is going to do. Um, are they going to be happy with five years? Do they want this bump faced out faster? At the end of the day, you know, this will go through. I, um, I think sort of the bipartisanship, the the relative ease, the five-year element shows that is, you know, pretty everybody's pretty hunky-dory over on the Senate side. The House is always a little bit more uncertain. I, I would suspect that, well, you know what? I, I have trouble predicting anything in the House. I guess my gut feeling is it gets through the House, but maybe not so you know, cleanly. Yeah. I mean, it's a, you know, there's always a question when you have a bipartisan bill that's a must-pass bill, CHIP expires at the end of September, does it then become a vehicle for other health things? And I know that states that I spoke to were very concerned. Some were already looking at, you know, are we going to have to put people into the ACA exchanges for a short period of time if we don't get this money? So I think that bipartisan agreement at least is a step forward for the states I've talked with. They're very relieved. But you're right. Everyone's been really concerned that they're going to bog the this, and it won't be a clean bill. But this is the first sign that perhaps it possibly could be. On the Senate side, Chairman Hatch has been really clear that he wanted a clean bill um, and he got the clean bill. Um, you know, so once it's clean and one chamber and Hatch made that clear and achieved that as of now, I mean, it still has to go to the floor, but I mean, it's it's 
it's leaving the station as a clean bill, that helps that dynamic in the House. All right. Well, let's move on to the other bipartisan effort in the Senate. That's the Senate Help Committee, which is still trying to come up with a bill to stabilize the individual insurance market. On the one hand, they're running out of time, too. Open enrollment for next year starts November 1st. Insurance companies have to sign their final contracts by the end of this month if they're going to participate. The committee had its third of four hearings yesterday. This one was devoted entirely to ways to give states more flexibility. And I have to say, if you're a health nerd like I am, it was kind of interesting. I'm starting to think there might possibly be some kind of compromise to achieve in the committee, at least, but I'm not sure whether it can get the needed support in the rest of the Senate, much less the more conservative House. Anybody have any feel for how the, how this process is moving forward? It's just, it's so hard to tell because I feel like the help committee is like this strange little bubble of wonkery. Um, and I just don't know if it's reflected. You say that in a good way, right? No, in a good way. I mean, I, you know, the way you described the hearing last week, it's very similar to the way the hearings were uh, last week. It, you know, they're really, I think, engaging in the policy questions about, like, how should we do this best? But I do think that the opportunity for a kind of broad political compromise is kind of difficult. And, you know, we had this big uh, package of legislation that passed the Congress already for, you know, appropriations and the debt ceiling and hurricane aid. So, you know, even if there is some little deal, you would kind of expect it to hitch a ride probably on some other piece of must pass legislation. That stuff has kind of already left well, the station. Well, there's going to be more hurricane money. I mean, we've had a, we've had another hurricane and we may have yet more. So, But I, maybe not before the 27th of I the month. I think there's going to have to be Miami. Don't yeah, there's going to be, have Florida to be more money? money for Florida. Yeah, that was Harvey money. So we're going to have to get Irma money. Okay, so maybe this yeah. maybe this goes with Irma money. Maybe this goes with CHIP, although I do think that, you know, Chairman Hatch has been pretty clear that he... Uh, is not interested in this bipartisan I, stabilization stuff and also that he that, wants a clean chip bill. Yeah, I do think that the Democrats are very much looking at other potential avenues should this turn out to be a stalemate with Republicans. The Democrats are very much looking at possibly hurricane funding because they're really they're, there's a contention right now because the Democrats are saying, look, the Republicans have moved the goalposts. They have asked for more uh, repeal of the ACA than we expected. And the Republicans are saying we have not moved the goalposts. This is what we've what Lamar and Alexander has been saying all along. So right now they're kind of butting heads. But I do think that this is the first real sign of some bipartisan discussion of what can be done, whether they can do it soon enough. I just don't know. Um, right now, there are some significant challenges, but I do think that they're really trying to push forward with something. I don't think we can possibly understate how hard it is to do what Senator Lamar Alexander is trying to do. This, the Congress has been consumed for months with trying to repeal Obamacare in the House and the Senate. It, has, it was their priority. It was their you know, marquee issue. They failed to turn from this huge drive to uproot Obamacare into, okay, let's do a bipartisan fix that costs money is an extraordinarily difficult thing yeah. to do. And he's actually, you know, he, there's something in motion. None of us know exactly how long it stays in motion or what it looks like. But there is there is a realistic policy, uh, possibility of a bipartisan deal on Obamacare. Wouldn't fix everything, but it would stabilize. It would buy time. It would It would sort of tamp down the crisis. So, or the perceived crisis, because it may not be as much of a crisis as, as depicted. But, you know, just, just the fact that we're having, I mean, who six months ago <laughs> thought that we would be having a bipartisan discussion about stabilizing Obamacare in the Senate Health Committee? You know, 
Meanwhile, the partisan discussion is not quite dead. We keep Never. trying to stick a fork in it. But today, uh, Senators Lindsey Graham and Bill Cassidy, and now along with Dean Heller of, uh, of Nevada uh, and Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. Are and, gonna former Senator <laughs> and former Senator Rick Santorum are all going to drop this bill that they've been talking about for weeks, for months, actually, since, since it all died uh, on the Senate floor. Um, it's, a, it's a gigantic block grant. So it would basically say, take all the money. Money from uh, from the Affordable Care Act and do whatever you want with it. But by the way, it's not going to go up as fast as health inflation. Um, and they, you know, they insist that they're right at the edge of being able to get this through. And they, the Senate has until the end of the month, until September 30th, to, to do this partisan bill uh, under the budget reconciliation process. They're actually finished with debate. They could just pick up where they left off. Senator McConnell just pulled the bill back from the floor. So it's not. It, it could come back to life if they could get it. Let's go around the table. Where, where, Margo, where do you think we are on this one? I don't think they have the votes for this one. And I also am not sure that they have the time for this one. Like there is, in addition to the kind of political problems with the overall structure, there's a lot of detail in this bill about which states get what money that I think actually if we, this was a serious legislative effort would have to be negotiated and thought about and discussed at some length. I mean, I think even... Uh, senators from some states who might be otherwise open to a block grant bill might look at this formula and say, oh, you know, I like the idea of a block grant, but this disadvantages my state. So it's just very hard to see how this gets over the finish line. But it is noteworthy to think about, you know, this is on a track at the same time that we're talking about reauthorizing CHIP, that we're talking about some kind of bipartisan stabilization. You know, all of these things are kind of up in the air at the Senate at the same time. And I think that's part of why I struggle to have any kind of certainty about whether the help deal is going anywhere, because there are these different factions in the Senate that want very different things. Stephanie, you've been you're writing about this, right? Right. Yes. Um, I I think Margot raises some really good points. I, I think that's exactly the issue that I don't necessarily think the votes are there. Um, I also think that there's a lot of funding formulas that need to be worked out for states, and they really just don't have the time to get all that in process. I know that they've really reached out to a number of governors and tried to get some push and sway on the Congress that way, but I, I still think it's really a struggle in the time frame that they have, especially with so many other different dynamics going on. But it's definitely worth watching. It's, their, it's the Republicans' last chance here. Joanne? I mean, you have to remember that the Republican base still wants to repeal Obamacare. They hated every bill that came down the pike this year. They didn't like the House bill. They didn't like, I mean, that's why they kept failing. I mean, they didn't like any of the three Senate bills. They didn't like most of the House bills. One finally passed. Um, So they've sort of not liked any alternative, but do they still have this gut desire on the Republican base and and the Trump voter to... um, get rid of Obamacare and come up with this mystical, mythical creature that will replace it and make everybody happy. That's still a political dynamic. That's a dynamic that Senate Republicans, um, they promised, right? Um, they That is part of why we're still hearing about Cassidy, Graham, Heller. I guess Santorum can't sponsor a bill. Um, <laughs> but he would know. like to. I have seen him wandering the halls of the Senate these right. last few um, weeks. Yeah, someone needs to remind me no longer votes. But um, the the... You know, that political dynamic hasn't gone away. And that's also in the stabilization, the bipartisan part is one reason why there's a, some controversy about whether it's a one year or a two year fix, because they, the Republicans do sort of want to be able to create some kind of crisis after a year where they have to come back at this. Although at that point, it's even harder because they would need 60 votes, not 50. But, you know, there's always, you know, they want to leave themselves a door to, you know, have something 
you know, Congress talks about cliffs. So if there's a funding cliff, it means, you know, you hit a wall and you have to do something. And that creates another opportunity for them to talk about it should they choose a year from now. Although, yeah, the what- main reason that I remain skeptical about this bill is that we saw during the debate about the earlier bills that there was there were a lot of Republican senators who really did seem concerned about the Medicaid program, about cuts to the program that were part of those earlier bills, and also about the Medicaid expansion in many of their states that was providing services to working poor people. And, you know, this bill is really rough on Medicaid in uh, some of the same ways that the other bills were. But in some ways, I think actually it sort of uh, cuts the cuts the program back more drastically. And so it's just hard for me to imagine some of those senators that came out really strongly against the Medicaid cuts earlier uh, suddenly signing on to this, even though it is sort of the last chance and there is pressure and to do something. some of the governors who came out against the Medicaid cuts. Yeah. 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 I think the the other the, the only thing that I think hasn't really been mentioned here is is the time it's not just the time they have to do this before September 30th but they would have to go back it would have to go back to the house they the house would have to be convinced to do this the whole time they were working on this they can't do the the tax bill they can't even work on because that would that would basically make you know the, uh, that would supplant the, the rules that they had, the protections that they have for the health bill, they need to do another budget re- resolution so they can do the tax bill. So that, although I guess they're having trouble doing the budget resolution too. So it's all, you know, it's it's not it's not quite dead, but it's as much of a zombie as I think we've seen. Yeah, I mean, I think all of us, I don't think any of us think this is going to happen. I mean, I think we are pretty, we, we, we would all be surprised. Again, you know, we say every week, this has been an unpredictable year, things happen, but I think all of us think this is pretty dubious. Way down on the end of the list. All right. And I think Republicans also kind of want to move on to some extent. Some like, of them are on the record saying that. Yes. <laughs> yes. There's... Including some you would think would vote right, for this. Right. My, my favorite line was uh, from an unnamed lobbyist. I can't remember who had this, but it said, Senator McConnell, majority leader, does not want to go through another goat rodeo on health care. <laughs> that was yeah. a wonderful I've been, I've been trying to wonder, is a goat rodeo like... How is a goat rodeo different than an ordinary rodeo? Like, it seems like maybe it would be easier to stay on a bucking goat than a bucking bronco. <laughs> I didn't even know there were goat rodeos. So. I don't think there are. If not, there should be. Yeah, yeah that would exactly. be fun to watch, but it not would. on the Senate floor. <laughs> or maybe. I don't know. Anyway, so, well, all right. So Republicans, we, we could stipulate, continue to struggle to find common ground on health care, but so do Democrats. Today, liberal standard bearer Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont is unveiling his Medicare for All bill with apparently more than a dozen sponsors, including just about every Senate Democrat who's even thinking about running for president in 2020. Uh, A House single-payer bill that's been sponsored for years by Congressman John Conyers of Michigan for the first time has a majority of House Democrats as co-sponsors. Meanwhile, we're also getting new Medicare buy-in bills. We'll talk about that in a second. Slightly different um, that uh, from Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut and a group of House members led by uh, Congressman John Larson, also of Connecticut. So I want to talk about the politics of this. But first, let's explain exactly what single-payer is, because it means different things to different people. Margot, your single-payer story from Monday, which is my extra credit this week, how single-payer health care could trip up Democrats, um, suggests that Democrats might be setting themselves up the same way repeal and replace did for the Republicans, a slogan that everybody supports until you get to the trade-offs. Yeah, I mean, I think in the simplest version, single-payer means that instead of having lots of insurance companies, some private, some public, some state-based, some federal-based, you have just one. So there's one government insurance company, and that pays for everyone's medical bills. And certainly, Senator Sanders' bill is uh, of that sort. But I think that when ordinary people and even a lot of politicians use the phrase single-payer, they're sort of signaling some kind of broader umbrella of values that they want to express. So they're saying, 
I want a healthcare system that's universal where everyone is covered. I want a healthcare system that's more fair. I want a healthcare system that's more affordable for individuals. And often I want a healthcare system that's more affordable for our country. And those are a lot of goals that are some of which I think are kind of intrinsically connected to this idea of single payer and others of which could be achieved through different means. And 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 some of which I think are kind of difficult in our American system probably like through any of these policy changes. And so I think that there needs to be over these next few years as Democrats kind of work on this bundle of possible reforms, a little bit more kind of coalescing around what do we mean when we say single payer? What do we mean when we say Medicare for all? And I do think that right now, um, it's 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 a sort of it's it's signaling. It's saying you know we're the we're the party we're the politicians who care about making sure that you have health care, but there's not a lot of specificity behind it. Although Joanne, Medicare for all, at least in Sanders' iteration, I think in the California we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Iteration two means not means not the Medicare that we have now, where Medicare pays only sort of a relatively small portion. It's Medicare on steroids. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, of of seniors' health bills. But, you know, most seniors buy some kind of supplemental insurance or they have Medicaid or they or they spend a lot of money out of pocket. So, I mean, but under but this Medicare for all is the no no copayments. Basically, everything is free. Yes. It, and what is missing from Senator Sanders' bill? The, um, none of us have seen the text. It's being released in a couple of hours. We all know the outlines of it, um, but we don't know the details, but it does not have, it does not say how they're going to pay for this right. thing. I mean, um, Bernie Sanders says that there's so much inefficiency in our and profit in our current system that if you simplified it into a single payer system, you would save so much money that you could afford all this. That is not something that everybody, even people who are sympathetic to, to single payer, that is not an assertion that everybody you know, thinks adds up. Um, we should note that Vermont, a very liberal state, tried to do single payer on its own, and it was the money that stopped it. Colorado had a referendum, and it lost on single payer, and it was the money that stopped it. And California, um, where, you know, um, a progressive state where single payer has you know, percolated for years and has actually become more of a center left as well of the left wing of the Democrats it became much more mainstream in how politicians were talking about it. It got stuck. It's not dead there, but it's on hold and it's over money. So um, it, it's 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 it's. The, the abs- it, waste isn't abstract. There is waste in the system, but like capturing all of it and creating a system so efficient that everything can be free for what we're paying now is hard, <laughs> really hard. Right? Well, and I, you know, I think the other big thing is that you know every every time you tinker with the health system, you create winners and losers. The Republicans have learned this the hard way this year. But doing something as dramatic as single payer, it's funny. I've I've covered this for so many years. I actually pulled out my 1993 single payer file last night. The Robner Files. Yes, the Robner Files. Um, We're we're all looking at it. It's like a giant manila folder full of old bill text and press releases. None of this stuff is is digitized, so I'm keeping all of these paper files. But, you know, one of the things I've seen in my 30 years of doing this is that there's this constant tension between the only way to fix the health system is to do it all at once because it's so interconnected versus the only way politically to fix the health system is to do it incrementally. And that was sort of, I remember in the early 90s, they did an incremental uh, plan that didn't work at all. There was a tax credit. Senator Lloyd Benson, who was the chairman of the Finance Committee, later vice presidential candidate, um, you know, did this great tax credit and nobody, 
it was too complicated. Nobody could use it. So they decided we had to go big. And that was sort of where the, the Bill Clinton plan was to go big. And we found out from Harry and Louise that the Bill Clinton plan was too big because it would disrupt too many people's insurance. That was one of the main lessons that the Obama administration learned is that try not to mess with the majority of people who are happy. So that so believe it or not, despite what Republicans say, the Affordable Care Act was actually incremental. Well, now we're back to sort of single payer, which is the, oh, you have to do it all at once. And right, now there's not an option. It would be the single system for health care. So people who are currently getting uh, insurance through their jobs who by and large, many are happy. I mean, we, people complain about it, but in terms of, you know, are people have a level of satisfaction about their current insurance? What's the number? One hundred fifty million, one hundred sixty million? I forgot. One hundred fifty-five. About. Yeah. That's I right. mean, do are you? All of those people would be moved into this new system that's disruptive. Not everybody likes disruption. Well, and I, I also think that the the single payer talk. What's really remarkable about it is that you did not see this even just a few years ago. Like what we're seeing in terms of support for this among the Democrats, I think shows that they're really trying to frame their message about health care. And they really see an opportunity here, which is why you're seeing some of these more incremental bills that are being debated or looked at, because I think they're looking at the election. They're saying, okay, what can we kind of coalesce around for 2018 as our message? And that may be something more incremental than what Bernie Sanders has in mind. And that, but yet, that may be a goalpost out when you look at 2020 and beyond. So it's sort of a process of what I really think is remarkable, seeing Democrats that would never have supported this suddenly kind of coming together and this becoming a campaign issue. Joe right. Manchin yesterday, the most conservative senator, I think everybody would agree, in, in the, the most conservative Democrat in the Senate, told, I guess it was the Hill, that we should look at single payer. He didn't, he by no means endorsed it, but he suggested right. that, you know, as you look at everything, that should be one of the things that should be under examination. That is something that 12 months ago, yeah. I couldn't even yeah, I th- begin. I, even it's worth, I think it's I mean, worth it, it's acknowledging really how remarkable this shift is. So, yeah. you know, we're just coming out of an election the 2016 election in which Republicans won both houses of Congress and the White House. And every single one of those Republican candidates ran on a platform of, I'm going to repeal and replace Obamacare because government-run health care is terrible and we shouldn't have it. And now we are, you know, just eight months, nine months later, and we are seeing the Democratic Party shift beyond we like Obamacare, we want to protect it, we want to fix the small problems into we need to completely restructure the healthcare system to give the government a still bigger role and to expand our sense of what healthcare should look like in this country. So it's, you know, the Sanders bill, I think, has 15 co-sponsors last I checked. You know, the I last 14, time the last sure time that <laughs> the last time that Sanders introduced a single payer bill, he had zero co-sponsors. Right. There's a uh, Medicare for all bill in the House from uh, Congressman Conyers. He's been introducing that bill every year for decades. Uh, he has the majority of House Democrats are now co-sponsors on that bill. And again, I, if you look at the statements from members of Congress who have signed on to both of these bills, I think you almost like can't take their support literally. It's not that they've read every word of this bill and say, this is exactly how I want the healthcare system to look. But I think they feel that it is important as an expression of their values for them to say, we need to move in this direction and not just a little bit, maybe a lot. But I also think the um, Bernie Sanders wing of the party has shaped the words being used. And I think a lot of Democrats would rather be talking about universal coverage rather than single payer, because single payer is a way of getting to universal coverage, but universal coverage lets you do it in a number of ways. Hillary Clinton in the primary campaign 
uh, against uh, Bernie Sanders talked a lot about making sure everybody was covered, universal coverage. And the, you know, the goal was to cover everybody. She wasn't going to get so hung up on what, what your mechanism is. For some of the people who are on the single payer side, they agree with that. You know, single payer may be their preferred way of getting there, but they would be comfortable with some other thing that covered everybody. But for part of the Democratic Party now, and it is single payer is the goal. And you're going to, there's a huge series of political and linguistic battles to be fought. And it's, you know, the Democrat, there are progressive Democrats who are at heart are single payer people who are very worried about this. And we, I mean, we saw Ron Pollock, um, who, you know, was one of the leading advocates for health coverage, writing an op-ed the other day about, you know, let's not at a, you know, he credit. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> it was, his, he's his, not the only one. I mean, it, it's. It, it, I mean, the, the political dynamic has changed. If you know, he, we will. If you know, Ron took a long nap and woke up and had single payer, and you know, I don't think he'd be unhappy at all. But he's worried about a, di- a political dynamic, uh, expectations, um, primary possibilities. You know, th- that are you know potentially treacherous for democratic candidates. I think candidates. it's a really important point that you can't make enough that universe that single payer and universal coverage are not the same right, thing. Right. That you that that there are lots of countries that have universal coverage that don't have single payer. Um and I think that's the point that that a lot I mean I that that was my one there was a very good Washington Post uh, story that posted last night about the Sanders bill but he used that interchangeably and I got really frustrated. It's like no, single payer is single payer universal coverage you can do any variety of ways of which Medicare for all is just one. Or Medicaid for all, which we'd never I heard, was, you know, right. well, that's a brand new one. It came yeah, up in Nevada right. a couple of months ago. And then um, Brian I think Shatz it's Senator Shatz yeah. was also talking about it. We hadn't, I don't remember anybody talking. Well, that was, Julie might remember, but I don't <laughs> think I'd heard that one before. That was my, my I got one last question because we're going to run out of time. Um, where do these sort of Medicare or perhaps Medicaid buy-ins come in? They seem to be sort of a, maybe another, a stepping stone. You know, the idea that, well, it would, rather than Medicare for all, get rid of the insurance companies, well, we would let people buy into Medicare if they want it, kind of, you know, the, the big public option that we've all been talking about. Or there was, I think there's a bill that would let employers buy in to Medicare. So, I mean, that, that sort of, that seems to me kind of trying to get to the same place, but maybe using a different mechanism. Well, there are three or four different versions of buy-ins. One is to have Medicare be sort of an, a, a, become the public option in the exchanges. One is to um, allow people from age 50 or 54, 55, I think it was, 55 to 65, pre, the pre-Medicare population to buy in if um, if that made economic sense for them. I believe they'd be able to, if they qualified for um, subsidies under Obamacare, they'd be able to use those subsidies to buy Medicare. There's not a lot of details in any of these bills. I mean, I can... I. I I I had heard that an earlier version of Senator Sanders' bill actually had a buy-in as the first step, and I don't know. I mean, the person who told me that wasn't Senator Sanders, so it may not have been true. It's not in this step. I mean, this is more. This doesn't go that model. It, it seems like something politically that they could have sort of rallied around without cutting each other's throats. You know, like oh, this is you know for some we'll we'll do this first, and then we'll talk about the rest of single payer later. It seemed to be something that more of the moderates might have been able to safely embrace, but I don't think it's. So the public option was something that was discussed as part of the Obamacare bill. There was an idea that there should be some kind of government health insurance option on the exchanges and people could choose between a government plan 
or one of these private plans. And there was also a thought that, okay, if we have the government plan here, it'll provide some price discipline for the private insurers. And, you know, in 2009, 2010, that was too liberal for the Democrats. You know, there were well, a lot- it passed the House. What? It passed the House. It passed the House. Yeah. But in, in the Senate, you know, it, it got stripped out. And there were, I think there was a lot of support for it. It wasn't that, ever, you know, it wasn't that the majority yeah, so was, of Democrats Joe were- Joe Lieberman against, stopped it, was, it basically. Yeah. <laughs> ben Nelson had, I think, yeah, as ben well. Nelson, right? But I, th- yeah. I think of these things as being kind of new flavors of that, of, as, as, as you know, can we introduce more government health care into the existing system? And I think it's all on a continuum in the direction of something really disruptive and transformative like the Sanders plan that wants to refashion the whole health care system into a government system is can we have the government system be an option that exists alongside these other options that are you know still in place? And I think that one of the real issues is public support. I mean, I know that you're seeing the polling showing increasing public support. But when you start to ask people actual questions about how this would play out, then you see that support wanes. So I think the messaging on this is going to be really key. And I'm not exactly sure the Democrats have coalesced around that point yet. No, right. they're, they're, they're so busy trying and, to and decide over the this years, is going to be a litmus test. Yeah, it's how you ask that question. That The, yeah. the polling yeah. on single payer has really um, you know, varied widely over the years. It's kind of like really the polling depends. on repeal and replace. It, yeah. it, it, well, it really depends on how it's described yeah. and in the context. And also, if you say, even if it, you know, if you if you talk about the financing, you know, people say you want, you know, you want Medicare for all. Medicare is very popular. And um, but this this is a different Medicare. And we don't know what how you're going to put together the money. So you know, people like ideas. Um, when they, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's the, the calorie-free chocolate ice cream, you know, people like that. Some people would rather have vanilla. It's but, halo, right. But I, I think also, you know, our current healthcare system is so terrible in a lot of ways. It's really unfair. It's really expensive. It's really confusing. It's really complicated. You know, most Americans are basically okay with what they have, but they kind of, there's this drumbeat and this kind of buzz of oh, all of this terribleness. And so I think that these kind of anti-establishment critiques that say we're going to get rid of all of the terrible things about the current system and give you a better system, on first glance, those are really appealing. And I think repeal and replace is an example of that. It's, you know, all the dysfunction of the healthcare system sort of got heaped on Obamacare. We're going to blame Obamacare for everything that's wrong. And if we just get rid of Obamacare, you know, as President Trump said, you know, oh, deductibles are too high, premiums are too high. Somehow getting rid of Obamacare was going to solve all of those problems. People like that message. And I think that single payer, uh, when you just pull on it kind of in a vague, abstract way, it's drawing on a lot of that same sentiment of feeling like, I just don't really like the way the healthcare system works. It seems like there's a better way. Maybe if we started over, if we transformed it, it would be better. But then there is this difficult process of as you get into the details, there are trade-offs, there are winners and losers, there are costs. And you start to see in the polling some of the support for single payer sort of fall away as people learn more. But all you know, the four of us are sitting here talking about both the policy and political pitfalls. But you know, as I think Stephanie said at the very beginning, something really did change. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. the the single payer is being talked about in a way that we have never seen it talked about yes. by people who would not have been talking about it before. And there is a there, you know, how much it stays in the news, where it goes. We have something did change, and I don't think it totally goes back. I think that it is. Um, injected into the conversation, not as a sort of a fairy tale, but as a policy option, a, a complicated, hard to achieve policy option. But I think it's really much more of a policy option um, and part of the debate going forward and the politics going forward in a way that it, I don't think we would have thought a year ago. Yeah, right. I suspect I we're going to keep talking about yes, that. Yes, I was yeah. saying, we're going to keep talking about it, too. <laughs> but not now. Yeah. Julie's file <laughs> will get bigger. Yes. So let's wrap things up with the segment we call Extra Credit. That's where each of us recommends a story they read recently that they think everyone else should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. 
it. We will post the link to these pieces on the Kaiser Health News site, khn.org. I've already done mine. Uh, Stephanie, I know yours is about single payer, so I'm going to let you go next. Right. It's a piece that Ron Pollack did uh, for Vox that um, looks at how single payer is not the only progressive option on health care. And it's really, it's really worth reading because it lays out a lot of the history as well for people who are not familiar with it and kind of looks at what are some of the politically feasible ways that this could potentially be done. It, it is a, a good kind of overview and worth reading. And Ron Pollack, to, you know, just for, for those who don't know, has been sort of one of the leading uh, left-leaning voices yes. on health care for decades. since, yes, longer than I have been doing this. So that's a really long time. <laughs> uh, Margo. Uh, so I wanted to uh, recommend another Vox.com piece, this one from Dylan Scott that's looking at sort of how the Republican healthcare intelligentsia is regrouping after what we're not sure if it's totally over, but it looks like repeal and replace is, is largely over. So the title of the piece is Once Obamacare Repeal is Dead, the GOP Has No Plan B. And it was really remarkable. Uh, he interviewed a lot of the kind of leading wonks on the right about what are the lessons from this and what is the, what are the next places to go. And it just really struck me that they are not sure yet. It's not at all, you know, we're talking about the Democrats kind of coalescing around a new and more ambitious health policy message. It's not at all clear to me what the Republican message is going to be going forward. If they can't repeal Obamacare, what is their affirmative vision for what the health care system should look like and what are the kinds of pieces of legislation that they're going to advocate for? Joanne? I came across a piece, uh, a Reuters article about doctors who promote drugs on Twitter. It was a sort of a small study of of, um, of, of oncologists, I think uh, blood cancer specialists. And guess what? A lot of them were actually being paid by the drug companies. And um, they didn't disclose that. You don't have a lot of space in 140 characters. Um, and the article did point out that there is a hashtag that a lot of, but you know, you as a patient, you as just a person reading on Twitter, you don't know what that conflict is. Um, the, the article did point out that celebrities sometimes use a, a hashtag. I think it was um, sponsored. Uh, yeah, there's so, a sponsored content yes, uh, there's spot some, on right. Twitter. So, so that there should be some, you know, either if you can't clamp down on this, you're not going to be able to make it illegal, uh, that there has to be some kind of disclosure so that when you see such and such a doctor tweeting, wow, this is a great drug, you know that there's something in their bank account. <laughs> Uh, pe- people should be wise on Twitter anyway. Um, that is it for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left a review. That will help other people find us too. If you have comments, you can email us at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at Joanne Kennan. I'm at uh, Steph Armour One. I'm at Sanger Katz. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, Be healthy.